So it's good to be here with all of you tonight. And um, I really appreciate this like stage in the life of Mosaic because no one can really go unnoticed, which I think is kind of fun in some ways. Like no one can fly under the radar. And if you're not here, you're, you're really missed. Um, and that isn't a guilt trip type thing in any way. Um, you just really are. So when I don't see people for a week or two, I really miss you. And um, I don't know about you, but I've always dreamt of having a church where our weekly gathering is more than an obligation, where it, it feels more like a family reunion than just one other event you have to go to. Um, and I think, at least from my limited point of view, that we're accomplishing that here. And so I'm really happy that all of you, and sometimes me too, get to explore the whole world and you get to visit with your flesh and blood families and take road trips. But I'm also super happy when everybody's back here and we return and we gather together. Um, and, uh, you know, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And I think that that's what the church is meant to be. And I'm just, before I start tonight, wanted to say that I'm really grateful that God put me with this church, with this group of people. Um, and I'm just grateful that your lives and your stories are encouraging me and stirring me um, to do more good and give more love, like Hebrews says. So, Anyway, there's my gushy. I'm grateful for you guys. <laughs> um, so tonight I am going to begin with a brief recap of Tyler's message from last week. And I try to do that regularly because it helps people who weren't here know what's going on. And it also helps um, remind me and everybody else, I think, of the context because Luke is a really long gospel. And so to kind of pick up and know where we are through that journey is good. So um, last week, Tyler shared about the God of the harvest, and he split chapter 10 into two sections. And mind you, this is only what I got out of Tyler's teaching, so other people might have gotten something different out of it. Um, but he described the first section of chapter 10 as the mission of Jesus and the second portion um, as the methods. So he said that the first was about what we should do and the second is how we should do that. And so we saw Jesus send out 72 followers ahead of him with specific instructions on how to do his work. And then we, had, we read a couple of pretty famous passages, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan and then the story of Mary and Martha. So we saw this expert in religious law ask Jesus how to, in, how to inherit eternal life. And um, that religious lawyer, he sums it up by saying loving God and loving others. And Jesus says, yes, you're correct. Um, and in our women's small group this week, it was kind of cool. We recognized that the story of the Good Samaritan illustrates how we can love others. But we also realized that Mary's posture, sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him, um, that might just be a story of how to, how to love God. Um, that her example is a way to love God, so loving God, loving others. And then overall, Tyler insisted that Jesus' methods um, 
are just as important as his mission. So the ends for Jesus, they never justify the means. He has to, he wants us to do it his way. Otherwise, the mission means nothing, right? Um, and that we, we lead with love and we're to live lives of mercy. So tonight, we're going to read um, just the first portion of Luke chapter 11. And we're going to start in verse 1 and end with verse 36. I'm going to read out of the English Standard Version tonight, and I do have it for the screen. Um, And just to introduce it, this first bit is about prayer. And then the second bit includes talk about demons, um, talk about signs and wonders, and talk about light and darkness. So I get all of the fun demon stuff. It seems like every time that comes up, it's my my week. Um, So this isn't really an easy passage to sum up with one thought, but through all the different topics, um, I want us to focus on one theme, and that theme is seeing clearly. So... I hope Riley doesn't mind me sharing this, but a few days ago, I did ask her permission right before this. It was in my notes, but (laughs) Um, a few days ago, I got a text from her um, asking if anything good or happy had been happening in mine and Tyler's lives. And I sent her a text back with a few things that are new and are happening with me at my job. Um, And she replied, Well, I asked her if she had anything good, and she shared something, and then um, she also replied back that sometimes bad things can get really overwhelming, right? And that it's good to also hear about good things going on. And I think that that's really true. I think no matter how many times God comes through for us, um, when we're faced with difficulty or sorrow or fear, Um, We have a hard time seeing past the current circumstances or past the past experiences that we've had. Um, We can get really overwhelmed. And I think that it's really important for us to allow ourselves to express our emotions and to process our pain and to sit in our grief. Um, And I know that in my own life, I've had periods of time when I wondered if God was there. I feel kind of like that book, that Judy Bloom book. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. I didn't know that book was published in 1970. It's been around a long time. Anyway, um, sometimes I feel like, are you there, God? It's me, Cassie. Um, and I've allowed my vision of who God is or who I am to become really clouded and foggy. And things can just be so unclear sometimes. And God can handle that. I think that God is, um, he's big enough to carry that weight. And he cares about our questions and our doubts and our fears. And he can handle our anger and our lack of understanding. And tonight, I just want to say that this isn't a message that's about like, just cheer up or get over it, whatever you're facing or going through. Um, But it's about asking God to help us see him clearly right in the midst of that. So we're going to pause here and answer a couple of discussion questions. And those questions are, um, what does prayer look like in your life? And how do you approach God in prayer? And when good things come in life, how do you react?
So Jesus' prayer life is shown more in Luke than in any other gospel. We've already seen Jesus praying in a certain place, going up to the mountain with or without disciples, and exiting from the crowd to connect with God the Father numerous times. And in all of the gospels combined, there are only three parables recorded that deal with prayer, and all three of those are found in Luke and nowhere else. This section of chapter 11 deals with prayer, and we'll read one of those parables now. So let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 13. <clears throat> now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. I don't think I could say that, but... <clears throat> And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is shut and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's a friend, Yet, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? <clears throat> so let's go ahead and break this section down a little bit. The opening is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer, not because Jesus actually had need to pray it, right? He had no, no need for forgiveness, but because He said it before His disciples as a model for them, we call it the Lord's Prayer. And it wasn't uncommon during this time for well-known rabbis to write prayers, down for their followers, and these would be used during set times and would be recited or performed repetitively. But an interesting difference here is that this is very simple, even simpler than the prayer recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, right? That might be the one that you memorized as a kid. Um, Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases this prayer this way, Father, reveal who you are, set the world right, keep us alive with three square meals, Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. It's so simple, right? It begins with adoring God, asking him to show us who he is. And really, it starts by us proclaiming God as Father. The prayer is based on sonship, that we can come to God without fear because we are his children. But in order to do that, we kind of need to see clearly who God is as Father. We'll follow up on that in a little bit. The prayer continues with asking for his kingdom to come, for him to continue to set the world right. So it gives us this global perspective, but it doesn't stop there. Jesus also models that we're welcome to ask for what we need. The kingdom of God is important, but so are physical requirements <clears throat> in our daily bread. So is our relationships with others in forgiveness, and so is our individual health in areas of temptation and sin. 
Then Jesus moves into this parable on prayer. He asks, which of you will go to a friend or neighbor at midnight asking for bread to entertain a guest and so on? This is an odd example because we don't really know what the culture was like back then. So I want to give you a real life example. Two Sundays ago, Tyler and I were so looking forward to sleeping. We were like peacefully asleep. And what did we hear at 6.30 a.m.? The doorbell. And Darcy just jetted out of our room. She ran to the front door and she was barking like mad. And Tyler was like struggling to find, he's like waking up, trying to find a shirt to wear. So I grabbed my, my bathrobe and I went to the door. And I look outside and on the path to our porch was this man. And I just want to tell you, he looked completely normal. He didn't seem to be like hung over or on drugs or anything. Um, and he asked if we were interested in selling our tent trailer parked in our driveway. My answer was no, but I was just so groggy and disoriented. And he looked at me and he said, I realize it's a little early, but I just wanted to know if you were interested in selling your trailer. And I repeated no. And I thought to myself, oh, just a little early? 6.30 on a Sunday is really early to me. And he asked if I knew anyone else who was selling a trailer. And I said no. And the man left. So obviously this wasn't a neighbor of mine. And it wasn't at midnight. And he wasn't asking for bread. But I got up and I answered the door. Maybe none of you would. And I obviously didn't say yes to this guy's request either. But I got up. And in this story, Jesus begins with which of you. And just to log this in our brains, anytime that phrase is used, it's kind of like Jesus is asking, can any of you imagine this scenario? Um, can you imagine a neighbor shameless enough to go to his neighbor in the middle of the night? Um, and then could you imagine the neighbor um, being asked can you imagine him being shameless enough to break the code of hospitality and yell no from inside? Because both things are really shameful in this ancient context. The honor shame code was so strong in this time that asking for something at midnight as well as refusing something at midnight would have been unheard of. So when Jesus asks, which of you, he's often expecting an emphatic, um, no, we could never imagine this. And Jesus goes on to explain how this relates to our prayers. Again, um, as we've kind of talked about, started the night, um, have you ever felt like God is asleep? Or have you ever wondered if he hears you? Have you ever felt like maybe you're a nuisance just knocking at God's door in, at midnight? Um, Jesus says that it's okay to ask, seek, knock, because God is awake. And you know, he's better than us, better than us humans. He doesn't answer the door all groggy and disoriented like I did. Psalm 121, 1 through 4 says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God never sleeps. 
He's not tired or irritable with us. And he's better than this bad scenario of this irritated neighbor. And you know, he's better than a really good scenario too. He's better than a loving relationship between a human father and his son. So Jesus asks another one of these, which of you questions, which of you fathers, I think this is an interesting reminder that some of the disciples were fathers. They had kids at home. So which of you fathers, when asked for a fish, would give your child a scorpion? Or which of you, when asked for an egg, would... Um, sorry. Which of you, when asked for a fish, would give your child a serpent? Or which of you, when asked for an egg, would give a scorpion? They're kind of odd examples, but I guess snakes have scales and fish have scales. And apparently I read that a curled up scorpion apparently um, kind of looks like an egg. I don't know if that's true. I didn't see any pictures. Anyway, the answer again here is no, never. We could never imagine this. This is completely unthinkable. So Jesus points out to us that God is greater than even the best of fathers. God's delighted to meet the needs of his children. And Klein Snodgrass says of this passage, well beyond what a human might do, God will respond. Jesus' conviction is that God is a God who eagerly hears the prayers of his people, is biased in their favor, and can be trusted to respond. That's Jesus' conviction. It's what he teaches us here. But that's not always my conviction. In my own suffering or worry, fear or pain, I can very easily fail to believe that God hears my prayers at all. I, I sometimes think that he's biased against me instead of for me. And it's really hard for me to trust that he'll respond. So even though this next section is a lot about demons, um, I think that really it's all about having the proper perspective of who Jesus is. So let's go ahead and go there. Luke eleven fourteen through 32. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has Come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Side note here, um, they believe that that demons haunted waterless places, so like the desert. So, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order, and then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. 
and the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. There's a lot there, so I'm not going to hit it all. I just want to let you know that. In this section, Jesus heals a man who's mute. And the man starts to speak, and as usual, the crowd, they respond in two different ways. Some are marveling at Jesus' work, and others doubt him amongst themselves. Isn't that so true to life? Even when good things come, don't we sometimes doubt? I can tend to hold good things very loosely. I don't always want to cling tightly to hope. I don't want to get my expectations too high or really believe that God could be up to something good. I'm not always convinced that God is for me. And my past experiences or immediate circumstances can really cause me to doubt that even some of the best things came from God. I wonder if they might just be a tease or just like another thing to be ripped away from me. Or lost. And the crowds say that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, which is the Philistine Lord of the Flies, who came to represent Satan to the Jews at this time. So I wondered why would Jesus be accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan? So I consulted my parables professor from seminary with that question. Um, at least the textbook he wrote. I didn't actually email him or anything. To summarize what Dr. Lyle's story wrote about this, um, Jesus is accused of working with Beelzebul in staged exorcisms. So they're actually working together. It's like a play or something. And in the crowd's mind, Beelzebul is tricking them into believing that Jesus has authority over demons. But in reality... Jesus is actually just, quote, Beelzebub's passive and obedient servant. So the crowd is wondering if maybe Jesus is a servant of Satan. That's a huge accusation. How does Jesus respond to this? First, um, he shares that a kingdom in civil war will be laid waste. Second, a family divided will fall. And third, Jesus says, um, if I'm working by the power of Satan, what do you say about your own exorcists? You have exorcists. Aren't they, aren't they casting out demons? Are they also servants of Satan? Then I think Jesus uses this next parable to show that he's no servant of Beelzebul. He's not the passive or obedient servant to evil. The image is of a strong man who guards his territory and possessions, but when a stronger man comes, he's overcome. 
hearts. And indirectly, Jesus shows us that this is what he's been doing throughout his entire ministry. I think in areas that were Satan's terrain, Jesus has conquered. He's cast out demons. He's healed the sick. He's comforted the broken and suffering. And the only one Jesus serves is a good God and Father. And then Jesus knows that the crowd is asking for a miraculous sign, a proof that he's from heaven, that Jesus is from God. And apparently all Jesus has been doing already is not enough. But I can't really say that I'm any different. I've asked for signs. I've asked God, is that you? God, is that really you? And that's essentially what the crowds were asking. Jesus' response is that they won't be given a sign except for the sign of Jonah. A little context for that. Jonah was sent to share a message of repentance and love with the people of Nineveh. And he was so angry about it. He was so angry at God's willingness to give this evil group of people um, a second chance. So Jonah ran away from God's calling and he took a boat in the opposite direction. And eventually he offers to be thrown overboard during a terrible storm, knowing that his disobedience has caught up with him. And when he's in the sea, he's swallowed by a great fish. The Bible says fish, not actually whale. And he spends three nights alive in the belly of a fish to be vomited up on shore and still, <coughs> still when he's on shore later on, God asks him to go give the Ninevites a chance at redemption. What does that have to do with anything? What, what's the connection here? Jesus is greater than Jonah. He didn't run away from God's call. He responded in obedience to offer redemption to an evil generation he called this group and us, really. He says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Which, by the way, in verse 28, I think includes his mother. Uh, he doesn't really deny that his mom is blessed. And Jesus is also greater than Solomon. Jesus knows that this crowd <clears throat> may not recognize him for who he is until his death and resurrection. Those three days would serve, <clears throat> excuse me, would serve as a sign that he did indeed, despite all of their doubts, come from God, just like Jonah. And you know, we're here and we've heard of Jesus' death and resurrection. And we know that he's the ultimate sign and wonder that gave us relationship with God. And yet, I think it can still be so hard to see God clearly as the one who hears us and is good. So we're going to finish tonight with a short section on light and darkness. This is Luke eleven thirty three through 36. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. 
You see, I don't think the problem here, um, it didn't lie in whether or not Jesus was shining light. He was displaying the love of God. He was obeying his Father. Jesus was already answering the prayer that he modeled in the beginning of this chapter, right? He was bringing the kingdom. He was literally giving out bread. He was forgiving sins. And he was pulling people out of evil and sin. Um, the problem here was with how the crowds perceived Jesus. Their attitude was kind of like, I have the light already. I know it all. And I think I can do that too. The crowds, they couldn't distinguish light from darkness. Their eyes, they weren't working correctly. And I wonder how often are my eyes failing to work correctly too? How often am I flooded with my own pain or worry or fear or preoccupation with myself that I, I can't see clearly? There are times when I, I don't seem to have any vision or hope. And I wonder if instead in those moments, I might be able to ask God to help me see clearly. The message paraphrases this last, last section in this way. If you live wide-eyed in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a dank cellar. Keep your eyes open, your lamp burning, so you don't get musty and murky. So often, I feel really musty and murky. I find that my life is more like a dank cellar than a well-lit room. Don't we all get in that spot sometimes? Again, this, this isn't a message of getting over it, of just cheer up or just suck it up. I don't have any good answers or easy answers to this question of God, where are you? And I think um, that it can be really hard to sing things like it is well or God is good. Those are the exact things we're going to sing about tonight, actually. That can be difficult, but sometimes we have to, we, we have to stop ourselves. And we have to say, at least I do, soul, it is well. You will be well again because God is still good. And tonight, I want to sing that to myself and believe that, that maybe, just maybe, I can take God at his word. And that maybe together, together as a church body, we can, as Psalm 121 says, lift our eyes and see where our help comes from. Maybe we can believe that God will keep us and that he's always good and that he never sleeps. That was Jesus' conviction. That's what he believed. And I want to be like him. And so even though I don't have any easy answers to my questions or my fear, I want to be like Jesus. So I want to try to believe that too. <laughs>